Heaven sent moms. I'm going to make a statement this morning, and I believe that many will agree. Christian mothers are perhaps the most powerful and individuals on the face of this earth. The absolute most powerful and influential individuals. It is mothers who change the world. America is in a crisis this morning. There are waves of evil that are just pouring into our homes. Like ships being tossed about, the anchors of America is gone, and the anchor is motherhood. A war against Christian motherhood has been absolutely started. The result is immorality and adultery, fornication, homosexuality, militant feminism, juvenile delinquency, walkout dads, and much of this can be traced back to the assault on motherhood. It has been said that a good marriage begins in heaven. Well, I will tell you the same thing is true of a mom. It is a heaven-sent mom that makes a difference. Now, some in this building may prefer cars made in Germany, and you want your electronics made in Japan, and you want your steel to be made in the good old USA. But for sure, we want moms to be made in heaven. There's nothing like a heaven-sent mom. If you're here this morning and you're a mom or you're a grandmom, I want to give you some principles, not to in any way uh, make you feel bad or shame you, but rather just to encourage you. Principles from the life of Hannah, I believe that will encourage you just to keep on keeping on. And I believe this message applies to men as well, because really the same principles imply in many ways. The Mother's Day celebration is always a beautiful time, and I think it's a good thing. I'm not sure who ever started it, but I'm glad we take the day to think about the importance of motherhood. But for some, actually for many, really, it brings up uh, not-so-nice feelings at times. Perhaps your childhood wasn't so pleasant, or perhaps your mother is gone, or perhaps uh, you don't feel that honored as a mom, or perhaps you don't have children. There are a whole lot of things that sometimes go through our feelings in a weekend like this, but I'm here just to tell you that Jesus cares, He loves you, and I just know that from God's Word, we're going to have a blessing today as we find uh, principles from the life of Hannah. Well, mothers, you know, thank God for them. They're always making sure that they get those principles in where they can and encourage those children. Here was a mother who was preparing pancakes for her children, and uh, she was really trying to help them see how important it was to think about Jesus. Kevin and Ryan, Kevin 5, Ryan 3, the boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Sound familiar? The mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson, and she said, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. And so Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> there you go. Just like brothers for sure. Well, let's ask God to give us his grace this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for heaven sent moms. And thank you for these dads and for each one that's here. 
single, married, young or old. Lord, give us principles that will change our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be going to the first chapter of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible or your phone or your iPad, get it out there, or we have it on the PowerPoint as well. I'm going to introduce to you this morning a heaven-sent mom. Her name is Hannah. If your name this morning is Anne or Annie or Anna, like our daughter is, then actually you're named after this woman. The word means gracious, and that she was. You can't read through this first chapter of Samuel and not just be amazed at this godly woman. Now, she did not have it easy for sure. She lived in a very, very difficult season in Israel's history. At the time Samuel, her son to be born, Israel's condition was deplorable. There was no leadership in the country, and God said the very telling verse in the book of Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Polygamy, which is unscriptural, was tolerated in Hannah's day. I read a quote this week about Mark Twain. He was lecturing in Utah. And he had a Mormon friend who was arguing with him on the subject of polygamy. After a long, rather heated debate, the Mormon finally said, Can you find for me one passage, any passage at all, which forbids polygamy? And Mark Twain said, Absolutely. No man can serve two masters. There you go. <laughs> Elkanah had two wives. He was a polygamist. And though it was uh, accepted, it wasn't certainly scriptural. Elkanah was one of his wives. She was the, one of those original sister wives. The one wife had several children, but Hannah did not have any. As a result of that, the other wife put down Hannah, and it was a very acrimonious home for sure. And she lived in a cauldron of hatred. But out of this crucible came an amazing woman of God, a heaven-sent mom. Let's notice this morning five principles that make for a heaven-sent mom. The first principle is that of faith. She may have not had children and didn't have a lot of peace for that matter. But the fact is she made herself into a woman of faith. Her family was a family of faith. When people looked at her and looked at her family in the days to come, they said, those people are God-serving, God-fearing Christian people. Verse 10. Let's read it together, if you would, please. Ready? Out loud. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. She was a praying mom. Hannah was one who went to the Lord with her problems. She was interceding for her husband. She was interceding for her family. She was interceding for a child even before it was born. In fact, even before it was conceived. What are three qualities in her life? First of all, 
She was a prayer. <laughs> Forget the bad English there, but she was. She was a prayer. Now, what did she pray for? First of all, she prayed for her children. Prayed for her children. And if we're going to be a heaven-sent parent, we're going to have to pray for our children. Pauline and I, uh, separately, will pray for our children, as Hannah did in secret. But Pauline and I also, almost every day, we'll hold hands in the morning and we will pray, oftentimes for people in the church who are in pain and people who are, have difficulties, and we also pray for our children. We need to pray for our children. I am confident that the godly mates that God has given our children today that have followed the prayers of Lynette. I thank God for that woman who prayed and her prayers are following her, I'm sure. We need to pray for our children. We also need to pray with our children. I think it's important to pray for them, but I think they ought to know that when they have an owie, let's pray. When their heart is hurting because of puppy love, let's pray. When they have a test that is weighing them down, let's pray. Let's pray together. Learn to pray with your children. I think every day we ought to certainly, when they're in the home and they're accessible, I think we ought to pray with our children. They ought to know that the first thing we do is to pray. Another attribute about her praying was she prayed with tears. This was no dry-eyed mom. She was a weeping mom. I think uh, weeping prayers are the powerful prayers. There was passion in this woman's petitions. There is something about weeping before the Lord. It is a language that is like as real as any verbal language. It is somehow co connected to God. In fact, in the book of Psalms, the Bible says that God puts every tear into a bottle. That's a special thing about God. He not only watches all our words, He bottles all of our tears. I believe we ought to also pray with specifics. How did she pray? She was a prayer, but she prayed for her children. She prayed with her children. I'm sure when the time came, she prayed with tears, but she also prayed with specifics. She said, God, I want a child. But then she actually got specific. She said, God, I want a son. And then, God, I want this son to be called into the ministry. Now, of course, you can't demand God to ever do anything like that, and I'm sure she didn't. She would absolutely humbly submit to whatever God wanted, but the fact was, it doesn't hurt to ask. We have not because we ask not, and we yield ourselves to whatever God wants, but we certainly ought to pray. She was a prayer, but not only was she a prayer, she was a giver. She was an open-hearted, generous giver to the Lord's work. Look at verse 24. And when she weaned him later on down after he was born, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour. Now that may not sound like a lot to us, but you know, taking up three calves, I mean taking up one, you know how much one steer might cost. Those of you that have some cattle, I mean, that's some serious stuff right there. She took up three calves and she took up an ephah of flour. That was a good bit of flour. This woman was a generous giver. After he was born, she dedicated him at church. And then she got behind the ministry of the church by financially giving. And let me just say something to everybody in this room. Our money 
tells our children. No, let me rephrase that. Our money shouts to our children where our heart is. When mom and dad steal the tithe so they can go to Disneyland, our duplicity becomes very evident. We are pretenders and not parents. You know, to say one thing and do another, I'm going to tell you something, folks. You may think you trick your children, but they know. Never steal from God's work to do something for your children. This is not certainly the heart of Hannah. She was a giver. She was also a praiser, a prayer and a giver, and she was a praiser. Look at verse 20. And after Hannah had conceived, she bare a son, and she called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked of him of the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew language, every time you see the word E-L, it means God. Sometimes that E-L is a prefix. Sometimes it's a suffix, as in this name. But the word Samuel means asked of the Lord. Asked of the Lord. And so she actually named her son Answer to Prayer. Can you imagine having your son's name and they come into the building there, the room, and they, the nurse brings a little piece of paper and says, you want your name written down here? Yes. His name is Answer to Prayer. That's his name. What? That's his name. And every time she would say his name, Answer to Prayer, come over here. Answer to prayer, come here and do your homework. Answer to prayer. God answers prayer. The actual word means asked of God. And I think that we need to have more children that are answers to prayer. And I think you would agree with me this morning that once our children are answers to prayer, we ought to give them back to the Lord. Oh, the tragedy this morning of unwanted children. What the world would have been like if Samuel had not been born. You know, we didn't get it a lot, but having uh, raised nine children, ten really, but, uh, you know, in about that uh, mid-30, late 30 range, when there was a big bunch of children all over, and uh, sometimes we'd have a few people kind of look down their nose a little bit, like we were spoiling the world's uh, population or something. I don't know what their problem was, but... uh, You know, I once uh, asked one person, I said, uh, which of these, uh, where do you think we should have stopped having these children? Should have we not had, uh, uh, you know, Faith and Ruth and Abigail? Or at what point do we, no, everyone is precious. We wouldn't give any back. This world is a better place because of these children and not a worse place. The University of North Carolina did a study about religious youth. They found some interesting things about these children. They actually took children or youth ages 12 to 14, and they found that those raised in religious households, was the term they used, were significantly more likely than their peers from non-religious families to admire their mother and father, to not run away from home, to eat with their parents at night, and to allow their parents to be involved in their social lives. Here, this secular university has done a study that has verified what we've always said, a child that comes in answer to prayer, a praying mom, a praising mom. You know, over the past decade, households led by unmarried partners have increased by 72%. For the first time ever, intact families, sometimes called nuclear families, 
intact families with a mom and a dad have dropped below 23% of homes with children. A third of all babies now are born to unmarried women. Sexual, same-sex uh, homes now are adopting children. Many politicians who are uh, homosexuals will openly advertise about their family. And the social changes of this is far-reaching for our country. When a Christian design for family collapses, an entire culture will descend into the same black hole that consumed Greece, that consumed Rome, and so many civilizations, great empires have been destroyed when the Christian Judeo ethic is gone. I tell you this morning, a family of faith is the best thing we can do, not only for the children, not only for our family, but for civilization itself a family of faith. The second principle about her life was a family of focus. She had focus. This lady had her priorities right. And your faith determines your focus. Look at verse 11. She vowed a vow. She said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look upon the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, this is her prayer now, and not forgive thine handmaid, but will give thine handmaid a man-child then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Her heart's desire was that she would have a child. No, she would have a son. And the Bible teaches that children are, in fact, a gift from God. I say that again. Children are a gift from God. Always look at them as a gift. Look what it says in Psalm 128, verses 3 and 4. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine. Not a dead old uh, stick by the side of thy house. Thy children shall be like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed. <laughs> God said when you have olive plants all around your table, if you've ever seen the way an olive plant grows, an olive tree, we have some out in our little roundabout up there. There's the main trunks. And then there's all these little ones that just come up round about all the time. We kill ours, but uh, our, we kill our little olive babies, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, we should have them all around the table. And that's, there's something fundamentally wrong in America when you don't want olive plants around your table for sure. And let me just say to every woman that's here this morning and who perhaps uh, have never been able to have children and you'd love to have children for whatever reason, God knows your heart, and God knows you would love to have children if you possibly could. And that's not what this message is about. This message is about those that say things like, well, if I have all these children, we won't be able to take the vacation we want. Or children will make you poor. I say this morning, you listen closely, children don't make rich people poor. They make poor people rich. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll take a baby over a Beamer any day. Well, well, at least when I was 30, I would. And uh, not sure about now, but, uh, uh, but God uh, tells us that children are a blessing. Look at verse 23. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. Why did God tell us that she was the one who breastfed her son 
It wasn't always common that the mother was the only one that did it. Sometimes they had nurses who would do that, the original nurses. (laughs) But uh, God very specifically says that this mother, she uh, breastfed, she took care of her own son. And it says all the way until she weaned him. This was quite a process. I mean, this was not just a few minutes or a few hours or even a few days. We're talking months, maybe years. I think it's reminding us how important it is for a mom to be that close. But I personally think what it was saying was she was not going to let her clutches out of that baby boy until she had brainwashed him. My mom used to say, you know, every child is a little computer. You just, uh, you need to program them. And any programmer knows garbage in, garbage out. But we want to make sure we put uh, good stuff in so good stuff comes out. Verse 24, when she had weaned him, she brought him into the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Notice what it says, she brought him into the house of the Lord. She brought him to church. She didn't send him to church. She brought him. Are you listening? She didn't say to her son, well, you can go when you want to. When you're old enough to make your own decision, you can go. No, she brought him to church. You can't expect a child to have an appetite for church if you never take them. If you want them to eat good food, you don't say, well, when they're old enough, they'll learn how to eat good food. No, you start giving them good food when they're early, giving them healthy food. Put them in the nursery early. Actually, the word here for young in this, uh, it says the child was young. The actual word there is the exact same Hebrew word as used for Moses when he was a baby in that little basket. This baby was in church early. And I will tell you that a church-centered home and a Christ-centered church is the greatest recipe for success, family success. You can't have a better family than a family that is church-centered. It's not a cure-all, but I tell you, it is the best plan. When Pauline and I, this uh, early part of this year, had the privilege of going to Thailand uh, with our mission, visit with our missionary there, we were in a certain marketplace. Unlike the marketplace here uh, in America, but uh, the goal was to get to the end of this particular street so that we could see everything that was in this market and then come back and be able to make our decisions. Well, that sounded like a simple enough uh, concept to do where we would walk to the inn and come back. But as we were walking along, everybody wanted a piece of us. Every vendor that was there wanted a piece. There were people selling all kinds of fabric and jewelry. And my wife would go over there and I'd say, come on, honey, we got to get to the inn. We'd walk a little bit further and I'd see people selling uh, pad thai and then selling uh, coconut uh, um, dipped uh, um, corn, uh, roasted on the, (laughs) I got some of that. I got rice balls and she'd say, come on, honey, let's go. She'd stop at the vendor stands. I'd stop at all the food stands. She'd say, we got to get to the end. We had to keep our focus. And I will tell you to maintain a Christian focus as we go through life is as challenging as walking through that gauntlet of vendors who are trying to grab your heart at every moment. Folks, it's important to make sure that we stay focused on what we're doing. Don't allow these lesser lovers to grab our family's hearts. 
TV and sports and entertainment may have their place, but I will tell you, it is no way to raise a great family. A principle of faith, a principle of focus, and number three, a principle of fervor. Notice verse 11, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then notice this phrase, I will give him unto the Lord. Now that's some serious words there. I'm going to give my child to God. And all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Verse 12, and it came to pass that she continued praying before the Lord. She continued praying. This was a very radical thing. She said, uh, God, you can have my son. I'm giving him to you. You'd say, well, boy, this sounds pretty crazy. To, I mean, that, what do you mean no razor upon his head? That was a f- fervent uh, thing she was asking for. And what are you praying for here this morning for your children? Many here this morning might be praying for their children to be healthy and certainly a good goal. Others that they would be successful. Others maybe that they would be popular. and Others that they might just uh, have a, a good life. And while we hope for all those things, the fact is there are too many people, I'm afraid, that actually would feel like their children took a step down if they went out to be a missionary. But not this woman. She said, you know what, if you'll use my son to be a missionary or my son to be a pastor, thank God for it. She was a heaven-sent mom who had focus in her prayers. She prayed with unwavering determination. She just kept on going. In Psalm 27 and verse 14, it says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Wait on the Lord. Just keep praying. We don't pray for a week and if something changes, you know, I'm done praying. We don't pray for a month and say, well, you know, I prayed for a month. I tried that. We pray for a week. We pray for a month. We pray for a year. We pray for our children for decades. I read this week that the longest career in the same company, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, listen to this. The longest career in the same company is 80 plus years and counting. Walter Orthmann, a German guy, lives in Brazil, surprisingly. He began working at a textile company in 1938. He still is working there today, right now. He started when he was 15 in the uh, shipping department. He's now a manager, sales manager. He doesn't do a lot of traveling, they say. But folks, 80 years, I'm talking, you talk about fervor, you talk about a passion for your job. That's serious right there. A mother was asked by a neighbor, do you have any special interests besides your children? She said, oh yes, I'm an author. And they said, oh really? Uh, uh, do you have, have you any books? And she said, oh yes, too. And she said, well, what are the title of your book? She said, John and Mary. Because you see, I'm writing on the heart of my son, John. And I am writing the things of God on my heart of my daughter, Mary. Oh, yes, I'm an author. I am absolutely writing in their life. She had focus. She had passion and fervor. And finally, the principle of fidelity. Number four, the principle of fidelity. What does the word fidelity mean? It just means faithfulness. Faithful to a cause, faithful to a person or to a belief. This woman read a dedicated, committed home, for sure. She was 
devoted and separated to God. Now, to be sure, it was sensible separation. But look at verse 11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord, of hosts, she was proclaiming the one that's over every demon, every angel. By the way, that's a good prayer, O Lord of every host. If you feel demonic oppression, pray to the Lord of hosts. She, proud, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, there shall no razor come upon his head. Now, what kind of a crazy thing is that? We wouldn't understand that in our mindset today, but if you were an Israelite and you were raised up under the law, you would know exactly what that is meaning. Actually, the Hebrew word there is nazur. It is the word we get Nazarene from. And it actually is a unique vow called the Nazarite vow. You'll find this in Numbers chapter 6, and we're not going to go there, but I'll just give you a little quick rundown and summary of what it means. When a person took a Nazarite vow, it was often after maybe, or before, and then after, but maybe they would pray that God would heal them. And if you will heal me, I will take a Nazarite vow. Or maybe they needed a special miracle in their finances or whatever the case, a deliverance. And so they would dedicate, yield themselves to God absolutely. There were three guidelines in a Nazarite, Nazarite vow. They would touch no grapes, typically meaning no, um, no alcohol, but really couldn't touch any part of the grape. Number two, there was no cutting of the hair. And number three, there was no touching a dead body. God had specific reasons for that because actually nothing wrong with having uh, grapes or, you know, cutting your hair or things like that normally. But when it's a vow, a Nazarite vow, then it was a, it was a, a public object lesson that this person was sold out to God. This mom was sold out to God and she said, God, I'm going to dedicate my son to God and he's never going to have alcohol among the things she was saying. It's interesting how she brought up the same thing in verse 15. When Pastor Eli uh, thought maybe she was a drunk woman, verse 15, she said, uh, she said, no, my Lord, I have neither drunk wine or strong drink. And let me just say this morning, alcohol has its place. Proverbs 31 says it's for those that are sick or those that are dying. Why would it be for those that are sick or dying? Well, that's because it's a drug. Many people don't realize that the chemical agent in alcohol is actually ethanol. And it's a psychoactric drug. It's useful for things like that. If you're needing, uh, if you're dying or sick, then it's a, a purpose for it. But uh, for any other time, it just doesn't play real well. I will tell you this, folks. Uh, when mom and dad are drinkers, it just doesn't help a children want to serve God. Verse 16, notice what she said. She said, count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial. The actual phrasing there means... I am not a woman drunk. That's exactly what she was saying. She said, I, my son will not be into alcohol, and I won't be. She just said, I'm not going to be into drugs. Folks, you can't be drinking. You can't be smoking marijuana. You can't be taking illicit drugs and think you're going to build a strong marriage and a strong home. It just doesn't work. The Bible says those kind of drugs are used for people that are sick or they're dying. If you're not sick or dying, don't take it. Psalm 112, verse 2 says, The generation of the upright shall be blessed, and his seed shall be mighty on the earth. 
Years ago, I determined that the goal and the desire of my family would be that they would be mighty in spirit. They would be mighty. If they have a successful life or good amount of money, that's just gravy. Amen. Nothing wrong with that for sure. But the fact is, I want my children to be godly, mighty in spirit. And that's what David is praying here. He was saying, if we have an upright life, now notice that's not uptight. We're not talking about being so separated that we're uptight. And when I'm talking about these matters of separation, we can certainly be sensible, but at the same time, we can be separated. You'd say, well, pastor, how do you make your children be godly, as it says here? You can't really. You can't make a crop grow, but you can do things to help the crop grow. You can prepare the soil, you can water it, you can keep the weeds out, but you can't make a plant grow. The same thing with our children. We can't make them have might, be mighty in spirit. We can't make them love God. We can't make them go to, we can make them go to church with, as long as they're a minor. We can't make them love the Lord. We can't make them do these kind of things, but we can certainly plant and sow seeds. What kind of seeds do we sow? We just keep hammering away at them. We love them. We take them to church. We read the Bible to them. We give to the Lord's work. I mean, we just have a family of faith. When we have a family of faith, then we will plant seeds that just unmistakably, the huge likeliness that it will turn out good. What are the principles that changed uh, Samuel? What is the, what are the th how did Samuel turn out to be such a world changer? He was raised in a family of faith. He had a mom that was focused. She was passionate about her faith. She was separated from the world. She had fidelity. And number five, the principle of fellowship. Now, what do you mean by this, Pastor? Well, as I was reading through this, it was very clear to me, Hannah had a great spirit. This woman worked at building fellowship. She worked at having a warm relationship with her children. She worked at having a warm relationship with Elkanah, her husband. She built a pleasant atmosphere. Notice a few tidbits that I gathered as I went along. Look at verse 15. Pastor Eli was uh, kind of rough on her. He came down on her pretty hard, you know. He thought this woman was a drunk, and she was in the church just praying. He, he saw her, you know, moving her mouth, but wasn't saying anything. He, he was just kind of rough on her. And, uh, but Hannah responded, which was certainly okay. Nothing wrong with responding. But notice how she responded, verse 15. And Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord. She didn't say, get out of my face, you old crazy priest. She said, no, my Lord. She called him a title. She was respectful. Look at verse 16. Then she said, count not thine handmaid. I'm here to serve. I'm just a handmaid. I'm not trying to prove a point. I'm not, I don't have an issue. I'm not a daughter of Belial. Now, if she had lived today, uh, sadly, uh, too many are part of radical feminism. She would have gone on some Facebook rant. She would have said, oh, that crazy priest over there, he called me this or that. And she would have just, she would have lit in to Pastor Eli. But somewhere along the line, she must have learned the truth of Proverbs 15 and verse 1, where it says, a soft answer 
turns away wrath. Not a mean answer. Grievous words stir up anger. She cleared up all misunderstanding. She spoke with all possible respect. Folks, this was a nice lady. She spoke with kindness in the home. She knew that her attitude was the thermostat in that home. I will say that again. Ladies, you'd say, well, I don't say anything mean. You know what? Even our attitude makes such a big difference. And notice what it says in verse 18. Her countenance was no more sad. Did you know that as adults, we are all responsible for our face? We are. Some kind of have the idea that, you know, I'm not responsible. I, I, I know my face says things. Look, if you're over 30 years old, if you're over 20 years old, if you're over 12 years old, if you're over five years old, fact is, every adult really, the fact is we are responsible for our faith. I love the old uh, story about Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln uh, was asked by a certain cabinet member if he would choose this particular man to be part of his cabinet. And Abraham Lincoln, that great Maybe the greatest president we've ever had said, I, no, I, I don't want him. And we'll say, well, why not? He's very qualified. And President Lincoln said, I don't like his face. <laughs> and they thought that was pretty harsh of a president to judge a person like that. And they said, well, just because you don't like his face, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have him. He said, look, everybody over 30 is responsible for their face. Truth is, we are responsible for our face. Verse 18, her countenance was no more sad. I will tell you folks, as I'm out and about, oh my, occasionally I observe these Rosie O'Donnells, wives who are emasculating, I mean absolutely emasculating their hubbies with their looks. I saw a couple ladies this week and I thought, oh dear Jesus, that poor man. How sad that a woman's faith just absolutely just rips apart the heart and respect of a man. That was not Hannah. Notice she spoke kindly to uh, the pastor. She had a warm countenance in the home. This woman was a kind lady. She had a sweet spirit in the home. She worked at her goodwill. And she also realized that her husband was her first earthly priority. We have a terrible trouble in America today. We have so many moms that are abandoning their home, not walking out, just leaving hubby in the dust and putting all their effort into their children, thinking that that's the plan for a great mom. I will tell you again, folks, that the best mom is a satisfying wife. I want you to read something here this morning with me, and I think you're going to get what I got when I read it. Verse 19 speaking about her and her husband. They rose up in the morning early. They worshiped before the Lord. They returned, came to their house to Ramah, and Elkanah knew his, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now, I want to be as delicate as I possibly can here, but I will say this. They got up in the morning. They went to church together. They came home, and they were intimate. That was the most holy thing they could do that day. That was a spiritual thing to do. The Bible says she was warm and intimate with her husband. And ladies, I remind you that the best wife or the best mother is a great wife. And that's what she was. She was a person who brought fellowship into the home. 
She had a great countenance. She had a great spirit. She was warm to her husband. And as a result, God gave her the desires of her heart. Five amazing principles. Well, we've studied this morning. We've laughed a little and we've had a great time. And as I close this morning, I was thinking this week about people who perhaps didn't have the, the privilege of a, of a good home. One name came across my mind, and I thought I would investigate. The name is Adolf Hitler. The very name fills our hearts with disgust, heinous, the crimes, really the main perpetrator in the killing of 11 million people in a modern society, seven million of Jews. And yet uh, Adolf Hitler was, was human. He may seem inhuman, but the fact is he had a mom and he had a dad. I decided I would just kind of look a little bit, uh, didn't study a lot, but enough to kind of get an idea of what his home life was like. He had a distant father, angry, distant father, and a mother who, perhaps because the home was so harsh, because of all the situations that had gone on, and she pulled away from her husband. In fact, whenever she referred to her husband, she always referred to him as uncle. Adolf knew his dad as uncle. Their fellowship was gone, and they had a religious home, Roman Catholic, but it sadly was in form only. They, uh, Adolf actually grew up uh, hating Christianity. He felt like it was a weak faith and was more attracted to Islam and some others. His mother, when she was in her late 40s, died of cancer, breast cancer. Adolf was a young man at that time. In his, he was a teenager. And uh, a couple other brothers and sisters had passed away, and so it was just him and I think a sister or a brother. And he was devastated. A dad who didn't care, a mom who did care, but frankly was not spiritual, just religious. And all of this came down on him, and he was absolutely bitter. In fact, the doctor who cared for Adolf Hitler's mom said, I have never witnessed a young man any more broken about the death of a parent than Adolf Hitler. What happened to him? What happened in his life that just turned him into this monster? Is there something about his family life that maybe made him at least partly what he was? Certainly we can't blame a parent for all that, but the fact is you wonder how things might have been different had he had a family of faith, a God-fearing, loving mother and father who got behind him and supported him. Those who were loving like Hannah. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed.